Coming up in this episode, we've got news and reviews that you can use as we head towards Valentine's Day. Welcome to episode 287 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me as always is my co-host and husband and Valentine, Will Knaus. Aw, you're my Valentine too. Aw. As always, the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. A big thank you to Sarah for recently joining us. If you'd like more information about the bonus content we offer our patrons, simply go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad you could join us for another episode of the show. And we'll kick off this episode with some news. I am super excited to be hosting an event to celebrate the release of Philip William Stover's The Beautiful Thing Shop. You might recall last fall, I got to host an event with Philip alongside Ilya Winters to talk about the books that they had put out through Karina Adores. And I'm thrilled to talk with Philip about this brand new book. The event is for Doylestown Books, which just happens to be 10 miles away from New Hope in Pennsylvania, where this series is set. So it's going to be super exciting to talk to Philip about this book and the Seasons of New Hope series, really right there in the hometown of the series itself. This event takes place Thursday, February 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can find more information, including how to register for the event, at doylestownbookshop.com event. I really hope you come join us to talk about this book. There'll be some Q&A time in there, too, and it, it should be a really fun evening. Definitely looking forward to that. Now, on January 31st, I started something called The 100 Day Project. Now, what is this you speak of, Will, you may be asking yourself? Well, I'll explain. It is an artistic challenge that people all over the world have undertaken for the last couple of years, where participants take 100 days to practice their art or create a project. I thought this sounded like a whole lot of fun, and the challenge aspect would get me producing content on a more regular basis than I have in the past couple of months. So from January 31st, and for the next 100 days, I'm going to be reading a short story or novella, and then writing a quick review and posting it online. And I'm calling my particular challenge 100 Stories, 100 Days. Like I said, I thought it would be a fun way to keep myself accountable. But at the beginning of the year, I realized that I love short stories. I love them a lot, but I don't read nearly enough of them. So this was how I decided to remedy that problem. And you all may have seen some of these quick reviews already. We've been posting them to the podcast Twitter feed and the Facebook feed. And if you want to follow along, you can keep up on those feeds or... You can see all of them at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash 100 days. That's 100 days, where you can see the entire library as he creates it. I love that you're doing this. I think it is a super cool way to not only read more, but to talk about more of the gay romance that we love oh so much and, and put more of it out there into the world. And on top of all of the great things that come with undertaking this particular project, already in the last few days, I've read some new-to-me authors that I've really, really enjoyed. So I'm really looking forward <laughs> to finishing out this 100 days. And sort of fiction is such a great way to discover new authors, too. Exactly. Because, you know, you can get in and get out and go, hey, that was really good, and I want to read more. I want to point out something else that you're doing, too, that you didn't mention. You're also, each morning creating a new piece of artwork that involves hearts. I mean, it's perfect for Valentine's Month, for sure, to be creating all this wonderful heart artwork. That's really hard to say, heart artwork. Yeah, it is hard to say. <laughs> 
I have so much enjoyed seeing each morning what you create with these hearts. I've already told him that I may take these cards that he's working on and make an art installation in my office when he's done because I love them that much. If you want to see the hearts that he's doing, he posts them every morning on his Facebook profile, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you know how to find him. Super cute, and I'm so glad you're doing this. If you're interested in checking about what other people all over the world are doing for their 100-day project, all you have to do is search hashtag 100 day project on the social media platform of your choice since this challenge is usually undertaken by artists most people are going to be showing off what they create on instagram the hashtag is also active on twitter since my preferred platform is facebook for good or bad all of my posts will be appearing there on my personal page on the big a fiction podcast page and also on my personal website willkanaus.com And I, too, am doing a 100-day project. It just won't manifest itself to the world as quickly. One of my goals is to write a minimum of 30 minutes every day. This must be 30 minutes of new words. And I have three things that I'm working on through the challenge. I've been invited to participate in an anthology that I can't talk a lot about yet, but that'll be coming later this summer, so I'm working on the story for that. I have a story in my codename Winger Universe that I want to do as I get close to re-releasing those novels this summer. And I also want to get back to the Christmas book that I stalled out on last year. So I'm keeping the creativity up as well. I've enjoyed this first seven days. I feel like my writing mojo's back a little bit, which I'm super excited about. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this over the next few weeks on the podcast on and off because the project runs through May 10th. In some more news, I actually put a story up for pre-order this week. Love's Opening Night is a story I wrote a few years back centered on a Broadway dancer named Jeremy who gets cast for the first time in an original cast production. He spent years in, in replacement roles and being in the ensemble, and now he's actually in a role in a big, splashy new musical that just so happens to star one of his major celebrity crushes in this guy named Ty. Love's Opening Night is the story of these two guys coming together over the weeks of rehearsal as the show itself heads towards its opening night. I've spent the last few weeks serializing this in my newsletter. It is now up for pre-order on Amazon, where it will release on February 19th just after Valentine's Day. So there's something to look forward to there. If you happen to be doing a short story challenge, because this definitely falls into the short story category, I hope you will check that out. Now, before we get into this week's reviews, we'd like to introduce you to yet another podcast from the Frolic Podcast Network. Here's Elle Penelope to tell us about her show, My Imaginary Friends. Hi, I'm Elle Penelope, and I'm an author of epic fantasy and paranormal romance. My podcast, My Imaginary Friends, is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. On the show, I give you, dear listener, a weekly look behind the scenes of my life writing and publishing books. I talk about creativity, inspiration, writing routines, this week's best thing, and more. One reviewer said, it's like sitting down with a writer friend to have coffee and discuss all the writerly things. So if you're an established or an aspiring writer, or a reader who always wanted a peek into an author's life, please check it out. New episodes post on Mondays, and you can find me at myimaginaryfriendsshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about movies and TV. 
The first film I want to talk about is a new movie called Breaking Fast, an absolutely wonderful romantic movie about a nice guy Muslim doctor named Mo who goes to his friend's birthday party one evening, which also happens to coincide with the start of Ramadan, where people of the Muslim faith fast from sunrise to sunset. Now, it's at this party that he meets Cal, a pretty boy struggling actor, and they hit it off, and Cal walks Mo home, and they spend the night wandering around West Hollywood. And the next night, Cal even comes over to his place to cook for him. And in addition to being a really delightful and sweet romance, the movie also addresses what it's like to be gay and Muslim, taking a look at Mo's positive views of religion and how he manages to steamroll over his friends' feelings, especially when they themselves might have less than positive views of religion. I really like how they address these different perspectives, but not in like in a heavy-handed after-school special kind of way, but in a really thoughtful, genuine way that was real and sincere and meaningful for these particular characters. I really loved this movie. It was so sweetly romantic with characters that we don't see a lot, either on screen in romances, we don't see this really in... in our gay romance books so much. It was a wonderful romance that really gave some nice insight too into the lives of these characters. This movie is 90 minutes and I felt like it was just chocked full of so much character development and story. So much of it was sweet. The fact that Cal came over and cooked on essentially what would be their first quote unquote date because it happened right after they met. And some of their instant connections between music and musicals and movies. They have this ongoing thing with Christopher Reeve's Superman that was just, it just made me go, oh, this is so nice. And that's not to say that these two don't run into problems too. Along the way, there's a lot of baggage that Moe's carrying that really causes some problems, not just with Cal, but with his best friend too, that has to get work through. It was was really an extraordinary movie that I'm really glad we watched. And as Will mentioned, Breaking Fast is a brand new movie. It's available wherever you would get your on-demand titles, whether that's through your cable system. It's also available through Prime Video and other outlets. Something else we highly recommend you check out is the new series on Netflix, Game Boys. Now, this Boys Love series originally started at life as a web series from the Philippines, but it has now been re-edited and expanded into standard television episode length. It's really about young love in the time of a pandemic, which sounds really dire and unappealing, (laughs) but Game Boys is literally the sweetest thing I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, I totally agree with your take on it there because I have been very much anti-pandemic romance. I don't want that to creep into... The, the fantasy that romance offers. But like you said, this is so insanely sweet that it worked for me on every single level, including the fact that it was set within the pandemic. The show focuses on our two young heroes, Cairo and Gav. They meet online and strike up a friendship. And if I had to describe the two of them, Cairo is more of the grumpy one. <laughs> Gav is more of the sunshiny Happy positive one, Gav finds him irresistible and pursues him online. Relentlessly pursues him. (laughs) The show is about being young and in love, and it's about the highs and the lows. Not only is the story very sweet and romantic, it also deals with jealousy and the complicated issues when one of their families have to move away. 
and also deal with the death of a loved one from COVID. It's also for Cairo, his first love. I mean, because he has a bit of a coming out journey that mostly happens before the series starts, but he's still coming to terms with coming out to his family and what that means and to be in a relationship with another guy. That's also really well taken care of here. I love so much how this story so in so many ways just follows the romance beats that we expect to find in a novel, the rise and the fall of the relationship, where the fights happen and the jealousy breaks out and everything. It was just, it was so perfectly paced. If it had been a book, I would have just been turning those pages <laughs> <laughs> to see what happens next. Oh my God. Just so sweet. And it was a little ray of sunshine the week that we binged it. Because make no mistake, we powered through those episodes because we had to know how it was all going to turn out. Yeah, Cairo and Gav are just adorable and irresistible. And they're backed up by some really engaging supporting characters. There's Pearl, Gav's best friend, who Cairo is jealous of at first, but she ends up becoming a very integral part in their romance. And she's utterly hilarious. She's wonderful. I would love for her to have her own show. <laughs> I know, right? There's also the scheming Terrence, who is Gav's ex. Boo. <laughs> I don't like him. Not one bit. And he tries his best to get between our two heroes. Wesley, Cairo's friend, also ends up becoming a point of jealousy for Gav. Wesley's interesting, how he falls in here. And it's a, the whole thing is an interesting look at jealousy on top of the great romance that happens because... These two guys don't understand how they both have the same jealous issues, and they're resolving this whole jealousy thing really added some nice nuance to this program, too, because to me, normally, when there's a jealous thing happening, it's all on one character's side, and here, they both had different moments of jealousy that the others couldn't really see. I... I found this element really fascinating and interesting to watch. Yeah, it's 12 episodes of sweet and emotional and irresistible romance. The 13th episode actually acts as kind of a bonus because it focuses solely on Terrence and his redemption since he's kind of the villain of the series. It's about how he finds friendship and love online. So Jeff and I really loved Game Boys an awful lot. And if you're looking for something sweet and utterly bingeable, we recommend you check it out on Netflix. Absolutely. And where it is, they're working on season two. So I can't wait for that to come. Another Netflix series we recently binged is Blown Away. Now, this is the glass blowing competition show that you never knew you needed. I really love these creative competition shows that are like super low stakes. <laughs> you can just kind of relax and enjoy them. Jeff and I, we both really enjoyed season one. We also enjoyed all the creativity on display in season two. I like shows like this because, I mean, we've seen every type of cooking show under the sun. I think we all have a fundamental understanding of how to make a big ass cake at this point. But there's something very different about watching people engage in the artwork that is creating glass around all this fire and the way that they have to blow the glass and manipulate the glass and color the glass. It's utterly fascinating. It's similar to the pottery throwdown that we watched earlier. Oh my God, great pottery throwdown. I love that show so bad. Right? Oh, it's so good. And, and the new series is on in England right now. I'm so, I've never been more jealous of the UK. I know, right? Because they're <laughs> getting to watch season three oh. now. There's something about watching people make their art. Yeah. 
and and the the consequences, especially with the glass and even with the pottery, it's there it's are an things, unforgiving medium. It is. It can be beautiful and wonderful, but it can you can also fuck it up, and it can be a total disaster. Yeah, and 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 you have no chance of recovering it in many cases because <laughs> super glue will leave lines <laughs> that the judges will not appreciate. Blown Away season two is available now to binge on Netflix. And lastly, if you're into music. We recommend you take a look at the BGs. How do you mend a broken heart? I was the guy who kind of nudged us towards watching this. We'd seen an interview with Barry Gibb on CBS this morning talking about the documentary when it first premiered on HBO. And I've always loved the Bee Gees music. And there are those moments where you're like, oh, that's a Bee Gees song. Because you'll hear something older or, you know, outside of really the Saturday Night Fever kind of era that they're probably best known for. And realize the massive body of work that the Gibb brothers put out across multiple decades. And I'm like, we should watch this. We should watch this. We should watch this. And it's really an amazing history of the brothers from when they were this singing group before they were even teenagers in Australia moving through the the massive success they had with Saturday Night Fever and then essentially revising their sound again in the 80s to become not the disco band anymore. And even the songwriting that happened around that, I so often forget that Islands in the Stream is written by the Gibb brothers and was made the big success by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. And this is really a great look at their creative process, at the struggles they went through, at what happened as disco kind of blew up. It's a very interesting part of the documentary on a night that they're on stage in Oakland at a sold out concert that the big disco record burning is happening in Chicago. That's a fascinating part watching how disco falls apart. And of course, so much of this is really told through the lens of Barry, who is now the only surviving Gib brother. Because it's really emotional as they start to move through the years between when Andy died and then Morris died and Robin died, now leaving Barry behind. Truly just a wonderful look at, at a family, at brothers, at the music they created, and their lasting legacy. I have to say, the next day I was on a Spotify playlist that had all of these BG songs strung together, and it was just really awesome. Yeah, it was genuinely informative, as all good documentaries are. <laughs> You fail as a documentary if you're not informative. But also incredibly entertaining and also fascinating, getting a sort of a peek behind the curtain of what it took to create so many memorable songs. Some of the history of songs like Jive Talkin' and Night Fever, how they created even the sound, because they were kind of groundbreaking in some of the sound that they put into records as well, just made my... My former music geek self, oh, so happy to watch. Really loved it. You could check that out. I think it might still be airing on HBO itself, but it's also HBO Max so that you can stream at your leisure. Well, that's what we've been watching recently. How about we get to some book recommendations? Absolutely, and I will get us kicked off. So Philip William Stover's The Hideaway Inn was on both Will's and my list of the top 20 books of 2020. And Philip's take on a small town romance with rich, wonderful, diverse characters, just really worked for both of us. And Philip has done it again with The Beautiful Thing Shop, which is the second book in the Seasons of New Hope series. This opposites attract small town workplace romance gave me everything that I wanted. Now Prescott and Danny hope that taking over The Beautiful Thing Shop is just what they need to help move their lives in the right direction. 
We met the shop's owner, Uncle Arthur, in the first book, and now Arthur has retired from the shop and he's leasing it out. In a bit of matchmaking mischief, he doesn't tell Prescott or Danny that he's only rented half the shop to each of them. Now, Prescott and Danny are about as opposite as it gets. Prescott is a quiet, reserved man who does things just so, and his collection is made up of elegant, fine art, and antique pieces. He wants the shop to be his calling card to being a serious fine art dealer. Then there's Danny, a boisterous, fun-loving guy who is happy in jeans and t-shirts and deals in retro toys and other kitsch. He's dreamed of opening a storefront rather than selling online, and this place lets him do that. Now, Prescott is every bit the stuffy guy, not wanting his art alongside Smurfs, Beanie Babies, Snoopy Cookie Jars, or anything of the like. And while Danny's willing to share the space, the way that Prescott pushes his buttons just makes him want to dig in and be difficult. But they've got to find a way to work together, though, because they've only got a couple of weeks to get the shop open before the big winter festival. Now, Prescott and Danny are really a hoot because they're attracted to each other, but they're also not giving up any ground. Every little thing between them is a battle, and neither of them wants to give up any ground. And this can be over things as simple as who's bringing in the firewood for the stove. Each of them also makes some pretty egregious, albeit accidental, mistakes, mistakes that only add to the tension. These guys have things in their past, too. Each of them have been burned at one time or another by exes. Now, with Prescott, his ex is the snobbiest snob who ever snobbed. The ex wants to get back with Prescott, and even though Prescott doesn't want any of it, he still has to deal with this guy. And then there's Danny, who has had issues with guys in the past who only want to be around him because of his family, who are very rich and own, like, this food empire. Danny doesn't easily tell people exactly who he's related to because he wants to be taken seriously for himself, not what his family has. Now, this is all a fairly typical setup, but Philip infuses these characters and the story with the same charm that he did with the Hideaway Inn. The one step forward, two steps back that these two get into as they work to get the store put together is so delightful to watch. The moments where they find common ground and actually get along really made me cheer. And what I liked so much is that Danny and Prescott are both happy and acknowledge these moments privately to themselves when there are these little achievements in their dynamic, but they never really say it to each other. And on the flip side, when one of them messes up, it gets them frustrated with themselves because they just can't easily admit, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to do that, or let me make this up to you, or whatever it is, because they just really keep digging in for the longest time. Eventually, this pivots to more forward progress than not, but it's tenuous every single step of the way. Danny gets jealous when the ex shows up, trying to get back together with Prescott. And of course, eventually, there has to be a coming to terms with exactly who Danny's family really is. The true truly find their common ground when it's revealed that two of New Hope's most loved buildings are targeted for demolition to make way for a parking structure. Like everything else, Danny and Prescott like different buildings of this duo, but they really organize and fight alongside the rest of the town to save these structures. I can't say enough how much I like these two, even when they're at odds with each other. They are so likable, lovable, and delightful characters. As with the first book, we found that the New Hope's town folk really love to play matchmaker, and boy, are they doing it behind the scenes here. They're really great at helping the two find their way together and are more than happy to point out when they're being stupid. Now, of course, as a fan of The Hideaway Inn, I really like catching up with Vince and Tack to see how they've settled into their coupledom as well. Philip's done a pitch-perfect small-town romance once again. It's that comfortable feeling of a queer Hallmark movie. 
And I would be so happy to just keep reading these kinds of romances where he tosses together two very different people and then gently brings them together for an extremely satisfying happily ever after. So I very highly recommend The Beautiful Things Shop. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm really looking forward to talking to Philip about this book in just a couple of weeks in our live event. So in addition to my challenge to read more short stories, listeners of this show will know that earlier this year, I promised myself that I would read more historical fiction. And that's the first thing I want to talk about, Rendezvous in Paris by Mary Farmer. First off, can we talk about this cover? Oh boy, yes, let's do it. (laughs) Because... The, the dude on the cover is just screaming to have a rendezvous with somebody. <laughs> Indeed. The guy on the cover is Damien McGovern. He is the hero of our story. And he's sort of like languorously draped across a Baroque chair, which is covered by a magenta silk throw. It's all incredibly luxurious. And Damien is serving up like 100% vintage bodice ripper realness here. It's really hot, and I will freely admit that this is what first drew me to the book, but I am happy to report that the story inside is just as compelling and sexy as the cover itself. It was a rocky road to romance for Dorothy and Marshall in The Duke from Paris, but they survived the scandal and blackmail to find their happily ever after. Now it's their brother's turn to find true love. In Rendezvous in Paris, which is the second of the Tales from the Grand Tour series, Lord Sebastian Stone and Damien McGovern are friends who've had their eyes on each other for quite some time, and they definitely enjoy engaging in some very flirty banter, but flirtations must be set aside because they have reason to suspect that Dorothy and Marshall's blackmailer may be at the masquerade ball being held that evening in the palace in which they're all staying. Damien dresses in an elaborate geisha costume that is so convincing that he and Sebastian are able to take a turn around the ballroom without the other guests being any the wiser. When their repartee turns a little suggestive, the two of them hastily exit the dance floor to find a dark corner. But instead, they come face to face with Solange, Dorothy's former lady's maid and prime blackmailer suspect. They chase her through the palace but lose her in the dark passageways. Their investigation at a momentary lull, they decide to head upstairs to Damien's room to further explore their passions. Sebastian is not at breakfast the next morning. While looking for him, Solange pulls Damien into a storeroom to explain her suspicious behavior. She is not the blackmailer and is on a mission to restore her family's honor. As for Sebastian, she mentions that she saw him leave earlier on the road into Paris. When he returns, he joins Damien and the other McGovern cousins on a leisurely trip down the Seine. Once everyone is aboard their well-appointed barge, Sebastian dodges the question of his whereabouts. Damien suggests that he can imagine a romantic future where they return to England to be together. Distracted, the boat runs aground, sending the cousins tumbling into the water. After saving several soaked ladies, our heroes make their way back to the palace, find an empty parlor, begin to remove their wet clothes, and continue their amorous activities from the previous evening when they hear a loud crash. They discover a peephole, a broken camera, and a secret passageway. Now, Sebastian fears that this might be Fordyce, the villainous blackmailer who forced him to flee from his home country. It's then that he receives a note, and he leaves once again. This time, Damien follows him into Paris and finds Sebastian working as a waiter at a second-rate cafe. You see, Sebastian still has his title, but exile from England means he has no other income and is too proud to ask his brother for support. 
The two of them retire to Sebastian's small room above the shop, where Damien uses his powers of persuasion to convince him to join him and their understanding family members back in England. Later that night, a note from Fordyce sends them racing out into the dark, and it's on the crowded Parisian streets that they run into Solange, who suggests that the blackmailer may have headed to the nearby offices of a tabloid newspaper. It's on the steps of the office that our heroes, the blackmailer, and the powerful owner of the scandal sheet finally meet. And it's Fordyce's own greed that brings him to a bloody end. Bedraggled but victorious from the evening's events, Damien and Sebastian return to the palace and tumble into bed together. The couple are welcomed with open arms into the extended McGovern family and, all in all, a happy ending to their story. Solange returns to service for the McGovern cousins, but her quest to avenge her family's name will have to wait for the next book. Now, this Victorian novella is filled with passion and romance and adventure, and God, Damien and Sebastian's story was so much fun. I really enjoyed how they were able to fall in love, solve a mystery, and still find a way to steal a few private moments for some very spicy romantic encounters. It's worth mentioning that this novella is, of course, the second in a series, but it perfectly stands on its own. The previous plot points carried over from Dorothy and Marshall's story are explained by the author in a way that's organic and natural to the telling of Damien and Sebastian's story. And I'll be honest, I was feeling a little bit down on the day that I started reading the story, but by the end, Rendezvous in Paris had definitely lifted my spirits. There's wonderful characters, a great setting, and a fast-paced plot. Mary Farmer combines all of it for a really engaging and romantic read. I was charmed by this story, and I think you will be too. I'm glad your year of historicals continues on a strong turn there. And I'm going to swing us now from historicals into outer space for some sci-fi. Now, I'm not usually one for sci-fi stories. I, I think you could probably count the number of sci-fi stories I've reviewed on this show over the years, probably on one hand and no more than two. It has to be just the right thing to get me to give it a go. But when I saw the combination of elements in Winter's Orbit, which is the debut novel from Everina Maxwell, I could not say no to this. It's got a royal couple in a hastily arranged marriage. There's romantic suspense and political intrigue in play. And yes, there's some really nicely done sci-fi elements. The further I got into this story, the harder it was for me to put it down. Right at the start, the story comes out of the gate with a bang. We find that Prince Kiam of Iscat, who is essentially the royal screw-up, must marry Count Jainan of Thea immediately. Jainan's former partner, Prince Tom, who happens to be Kim's cousin, was killed in an accident about a month prior, and it's imperative that there's a wedding between representatives of Iscat and Thea to be able to sign the treaty that bounds the two planets together along with other planets in the Federation that they've got. This treaty is up for renewal every 20 years, so the timing of Tom's death is really problematic towards getting this renewal done. Kim and Jainan could not be more different. Kim's outgoing, energetic, doesn't always think things through, and just sort of kind of glides through life. And now he's been thrust into a much more public role than what he was doing before with just working with charities that he liked. Jonathan, on the other hand, is very quiet, measured, thinks everything through to an, an extreme, and takes his duty as a treaty representative very, very seriously. These two are on eggshells from the get-go as they are thrust together. Kim treads carefully because Jainan's only been widowed a month, while Jainan is cautious around Kim because he knows that the prince doesn't really want any of this. Their romance is very, very, very slow burn, and I loved it. 
Everina struck the perfect tone between Kim and Jinan trying to find the love in a marriage that was forced with no advanced warning whatsoever. From the beginning, there's sparks of attraction that really neither of them knows how to handle, and some of the tentative steps are actually very touching, even when they don't work out. That they really care for each other surfaces to them in the best ways as they support, care for, defend, and rescue each other, because it really turns out that they want a relationship even really outside the bounds of this treaty. These elements coalesce when they find themselves stranded. The addition of this forced proximity time simply added to the catnip of this story for me, and I really adored both of their inner monologues as they realize how they actually feel with each other, and they start to deal with the idea that they really do want more, but they're not sure how to get all of it with all the extreme pressure that's going on around them. And speaking of pressures, let's talk about that suspense aspect. Kim and Jinan marrying doesn't solve the treaty requirements. In fact, the auditor who has shown up to situate everything for the treaty renewal won't recognize the couple and has other issues going on with his cat, including some missing artifacts and evidence that Tom was actually murdered instead of being in an accident. Oh boy, there is some juicy stuff going on here. Tom worked on a special project between Iscat and Thea, and all was not as it seemed with that project, as there are threads of a conspiracy that runs very deep. Kim and Jinan are determined to sort out what's happening. Not only do they want the treaty renewed, but there are accusations that Jinan's actually behind Tom's death that both of them obviously want to prove wrong. These two work together so well. As bumpy as their romance kind of is, the partnership is tentative at first. As they hit their stride and discover that they can really trust each other, it just cements everything together so much better for the both of them. Best of all, they surprise each other, and honestly, themselves, with the things that they can do. Kim is often putting himself down, feeling like he's not the smart one in the room, Jinan feels like he shouldn't contribute, even though he is super smart. And both of these two really find the way to bring the best of themselves forward with the help of the other in just some of the most small, subtle ways that was really endearing and wonderful. And of course, there are massive galactic ramifications here, too, so they really kind of have to get it right. I loved that Everina constructed a very fascinating mystery that just kept me turning pages and it was also one that I didn't solve ahead of the characters, which I always like when I don't quite figure out what's happening before it's revealed inside the story. And, you know, I'm not one for a ton of world building, and I can report that Everina keeps that to a minimum and gives you what you need when it's needed. And there's a lot of points here where we could have gotten into info dumping between what goes on with the planets and how the treaty works and the importance of all these artifacts and elaboration on all the components to the mystery. And it was just what you needed when you needed it and didn't bog down the story at all, which I really liked. There's also a tremendous cast of support characters here led off by Kim's assistant, Belle. She is far, far more than she appears, and you get little hints of that early on because she's just wildly organized and on top of everything. And there is a lot more to her no-nonsense manner of keeping Kim on his schedule than really meets the eye there. She is a woman of many, many talents, and I would love to see a story that's focused on her at some point. Now, I do want to call out that there's some content in this story that might be difficult for some readers. Jianan was abused by Tom in their relationship, and that does surface from time to time as they're kind of sorting out the elements to this mystery. 
Overall, I have to say that Winter's Orbit was an outstanding read, and I love the combination of tropes and all the terrific action and the suspense and the very slow bringing together of the prince and the count. I, I really look forward to seeing what else Everina Maxwell comes out with. So a couple of episodes ago, I spoke about how much I enjoyed Slade James's novella, The Uncut Wood. That story served as an introduction to his new series called Bear Camp. And I said then how much I was looking forward to the first book in this series. Well, it's now out and it is utterly amazing. I loved it so hard. I can't even, words, words. I don't even, I don't even know how to describe necessarily how amazing this book is. The first book in the brand new Bear Camp series is called Grumpy Bear. And it's the story of Luke and Sawyer. Now, Luke literally just has his guitar, and the clothes on his back when he arrives at Bear Mountain. He's hoping to find a job or at least work a couple of days during the camp's opening weekend. Sawyer owns and operates the camp, and he is the grumpy bear of the title. And when he first meets Luke, he's not sure what to make of the sunshiny, happy-go-lucky guy. We talked about this dynamic earlier, and it works really well in this story, too. Something Sawyer has to contend with is the constant threat of the nearby creek overflowing... Because of the topography and the way that the camp is laid out, their pool is in constant danger of being muddied by the nearby creek if its waters overflow the bank. And the pool is a key element to the big kickoff weekend. If it's not open, how else are they going to entertain all the campers who've come to a clothing-optional gay campsite to have fun in the sun? A summer storm forces Luke and Sawyer to bunk together in Sawyer's tiny cabin. Oh, there's only one bed. Force proximity for the win. Oh, I love it so hard. Anyway, the opening weekend goes really well. All the while, Luke and Sawyer are growing closer and closer. One night around the campfire, Luke picks up his guitar and starts singing. Which brings him to attention to one of the campers who happens to have connections in the music industry, specifically a producer who has created a new reality show for up-and-coming gay singer-songwriters. It's an opportunity that's too good to pass up, and at the close of the weekend, Luke heads to Atlanta. Luke quickly realizes that the great opportunity ain't all it's cracked up to be, and Sawyer eventually realizes that he's not interested in running the camp without Luke by his side. Poor Sawyer attempts to make a grand gesture, but it kind of falls flat. Aww. But never fear, both of our heroes realize that there is no place like home, and that place is Bear Camp. So, like I said, I literally loved absolutely everything about this book. Generally speaking, I have zero interest in camping or the great outdoors, but this story made me want to go visit this place and hang out with these wonderful, amazing, wacky people. I think Grumpy Bear is a wonderful installment in a brand new series, and I cannot wait to read the next one. Slay James, wherever you are, if you're listening, write faster! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm so glad you liked that book. And I'm so happy for Slade getting this first book out and the response that it's gotten from many people. I'm, I want to read it. I need to take the time to read that one because it sounds just delightful. Well, we'll swap. You read Bear Camp. I want to read The Beautiful Thing Shop. All right. We'll have to trade <laughs> and we can let you all know what the other things of these books, maybe on a future episode. <laughs> All right, one more book for me. Last year, Adam Silvera took his writing in a new direction with an urban fantasy young adult called Infinity Sun. I've always been a fan of Silvera's take on contemporary YA fiction as he writes some really incredible LGBTQ plus characters 
who deal with a myriad of very real-world issues. Bringing that sensibility into urban fantasy made for one heck of a thrill ride. And I know I'm throwing something else at you crazy here because I don't often do urban fantasy either. <laughs> so you can see that I have started off my year in some very different directions than normal. Now, this book is set in an alternate New York City, and we have twin brothers Emile and Brighton who have grown up idolizing the Spellwalkers, who are a group of celestials who carry various powers. Brighton is obsessed with the Spellwalkers and has even created a web series about them. The Spellwalkers are a misunderstood community who are often painted to be the bad guys for all of society's problems. And on the cusp of the brothers' birthday, they're hoping, although Brighton more than a meal, to get powers. Powers are a funny thing here because sometimes you have them when you're born and sometimes they manifest later. But in general, if you don't get them by the time you're 18, you're not going to. Now, Emil Brighton and their best friend Prudencia do everything together. They were tight when the brother's father died after a failed attempt to cure a severe illness. They're planning a great summer together before they all kind of move into the next phases of their lives, which includes Brighton going off to California for college. Now, like I said, Adam knows how to write strong characters, and these three shine. I fell into this story because of the alternating first-person point of view between Emile and Brighton and seeing this alternate New York through their eyes. And as a side note, the POV primarily is staying between the brothers in this story, although sometimes at very appropriate moments, other characters take over the storytelling as well, which was really a nice element, I thought, so that occasionally we could see things through some other eyes other than our primary characters. Now, there's a tension that pops off the page, too, because you know something's going to go down here. I mean, it pretty much says it in the blurb, obviously, that something's going to happen. But this moment of getting to know everybody and seeing normal life up close and personal, it's really like the opening of any good disaster movie where you get that look at everything before it all goes to hell. And boy, does it go to hell. While our motley trio is out at a rally for the Spellwalkers, they accidentally provoke somebody who they don't realize is a specter. And the specters are people who come by their powers through blood alchemy. This is a big mistake since the specter decides to go after them. And in a battle that climaxes on the subway, Emile saves them as his powers suddenly manifest. Emile, of course, is stunned, and honestly, Brighton's a little pissed because he didn't get the powers, because he feels he'd be much better at the whole powers thing than his brother. And Prudencia is just trying to look out for both of them and kind of keep their unit together, keep the family together, as it were. They end up on the run and ultimately are rescued by other spellwalkers who not only save them, but kind of want to use Emile's phoenix powers that have manifested to help their cause. Because there's also phoenixes in this book, which is kind of cool that this, you know, ties up, you know, the whole, the whole myth of the phoenixes and everything. Now, Adam weaves an incredible story as more secrets come at the brothers from all sides. I swear every other page I was like, holy crap, that just happened. Uh, Emile has so much to take in with the powers and what he learns about them. Brighton's got to figure out his place among this group of spellwalkers since he has no powers. And honestly, in some ways, he, he, for a little bit, just wants to fanboy over them, too. And then there's the big bad that's lurking, and that's Luna, who's a supreme alchemist. And she's out to live forever and extract a lot of revenge during her forever. She needs three things to make the Reaper's blood. And Emile and the spellwalkers have to stop her. And yes, I'm being really cagey about what's in this plot, because you really need to read the book so you can have those holy crap moments for yourself. Now, beyond all the great characters that are the hallmark of any Adam Silvera book, 
he really writes incredible battle scenes. I've never read a book of his where there's been a battle, because usually in contemporary YA, you don't need to have a big-ass battle. There are quite a few battles throughout Infinity Sun, and each one is bigger than the previous. Through all this chaos, he manages to keep focus, even while trying to save the world from the evil alchemist, on the brothers and the family that they have, both their actual family and the family that is banded together with these spellwalkers. And this really keeps the story rooted in a really solid, real place as they do these you know, extraordinary things. Now, I have to say, Emil is my favorite of the brothers. And I think that's because he's not so caught up in being dazzled by the spellwalkers like Brighton is. He really just wants peace you know, to be what's happening in the world without all the chaos that has been happening, which has pretty much been the case for the 18 years of his life so far. I really enjoyed watching him come into his powers. And even though he's a quote-unquote hero, he still fails plenty. And it's also great that he's still a teen figuring out life in general, too, and maybe finding a boyfriend in the midst of all this. It's hard to say where that's going to go. Uh, Emil being gay is not even close to an important element in the story, but it does surface periodically as he might be oogling somebody or kind of into this guy that they have come into who has kind of wandered into the Spellwalkers gang. Like I said, there's the smallest little thread that perhaps something is going on there. And I really hope that that gets to come to light soon. Now, I admit I am not the best at talking about books like this and trying to keep all of the super cool plot points covered up. But I will say I so much loved Infinity Sun with its mix of strong, awesome characters and the save the world heroics. And I'm really glad I waited until now to read it. This book has a major cliffhanger on it. Luckily, I don't have to wait very long for it to resolve since Infinity Reaper comes out on March 2nd. And I'm happy to say that Adam Silvera is going to join us on the show March 1st to talk about this series along with some of his other books. Fantastic. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the books or movies that we've talked about in this episode, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 287 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And if audio is your thing, the three books that I read this week, Beautiful Things Shop, Winter's Orbit, and Infinity Sun, are all available in audio. Some really great audiobooks there, and each of those is available from Libro.fm. And of course, Libro.fm is where you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. So you're giving a small part back to your community when you're picking up your favorite audiobooks. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. And listeners of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com slash Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O-F-M, for all the details on that deal. And pick up those audiobooks if audio is your thing. All right, I think that'll do it for this week. Now, coming up next in episode 288, we're going to be joined by Garrett Lee, and she's going to be talking with us about her two new books and what she's got coming our way in 2021. Yeah, we're going to have all the details on Unforgotten, which comes out next week, as well as the March 22nd release of her installment in the Vino and Veritas series called Heartscape. We'll have all that for you next Monday. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please stay strong, be safe, And above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big A Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner. (laughs) 